Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello and welcome to the How To Academy podcast, the show for and about people who think big. I'm Vas Christodoulou, the producer of this series and one of the curators of the Academy's live programme of events held here in central London. Every November, we team up with the New York Times to produce How To Change The World, a conference bringing together leading social and technological innovators to share their visions of a better tomorrow. This time around, we sent our presenter, Matthew Stadlin, backstage to meet the guests and find out more about their ideas. This week's podcast stars Dr. Hilary Cottam, a social designer recognised by the World Economic Forum as a young global leader. She told Matt about her radical plans to reinvent the welfare state for the 21st century. Hilary, it's very good to meet you. If there are extraneous noises, that's because we are backstage at the How To Academy's How To Change The World event, and there's also a rather noisy radiator. But we can cope, can't we? We can. It's such a pleasure to be with you. Thank you. Tell me, as you hide behind your microphone, it's, they're rather disc-shaped things, aren't they? And I now can't see you. I can see I a sort it's of... it's like interplanetary travel. It is a bit, yeah. It's a rather abbreviated version of your face <laughs> behind it. But tell me why relationships matter. I've written a book called Radical Help about the future of the welfare state. And in a way, the book takes off from where Beveridge, the founder of the welfare state, started. And he wrote three reports, and the last one is not very well read. But in the last one, he says that he made a terrible mistake, and he left people, communities, and their relationships out. And that was stopping people innovate, and it was stopping people support each other, and actually change their lives. And so I started from there. But when I started the work in communities, I think I didn't understand quite how important that error was. And so the book is about relationships because I learned that, you know, life is like a game of Jenga and we can take lots of bricks out. But if we take out the relationships, we can't really stand tall. What do you think he meant then? Flesh it out for us just a little bit by leaving out people and communities. Well, Beveridge, you know, when the welfare state was invented, it was the product of tens of, you know, he prototyped services in a very modern way. So in the 1930s, he started designing job centres in the East End of London, much as modern designers might do today. But he was also a part of an important group of intellectuals, the webs and so on. And they had this idea that you couldn't trust the common man, as they called it then, of course, because he was too emotional. 
and that if they just trusted the independent bureaucrat, people's lives would change. So the most important thing was to have impersonal process that could treat everybody the same. Now, one doesn't want to criticise that too much because we can think, you know, that we would have had problems with race and sexuality and so on, that people would not have access services without that. So we could say that it was right for its time, but definitely it's not right anymore. And we know that people need human connection to make change and most of all to sustain change. So today I was talking about challenges of chronic illness. Most of us will live with one, maybe four chronic illnesses. Of course, we need to try and prevent, but we also need to change our lifestyles. And what we see is that people can make change, but they can't stick to that change without being part of community groups, without their families supporting them and so on. Why has it taken so long, do you think? And why has it taken your emphasis on the problem for for this to be addressed properly? That's such an interesting question. Of course, there are lots of people who have been advocating for this and do this work. I'm not alone. But the problem is that those people, me included, working in this way, it's often small and it's in spite of sort of very bureaucratic systems that really bulldoze over our relationships, our horizontal connections with one another because they can't see them. And actually it's a very critical moment to ask this question because we're sitting here now two weeks away from an election. Both political parties have promised a whole lot more funding for the NHS and so on. And what I would say from working within communities and working sort of historically looking at the welfare state is, of course, we need money, we need investment, we need it really badly. But what matters is where that money is going. And if we're going to pour it into 1950s systems, we might as well just tip it through a bucket and watch it all drain away. Are we really operating within 1950s systems in today's British welfare state? Absolutely. And you know, the most incredible thing is, I mean, there's a very strong theme about technology in my work. And what I see everywhere I go is that we are using technology to prop up the sort of last gasp of efficiency of post-war systems. So what we do is we put curriculums online. We put curriculums that were designed to make you a sort of bit part in a kind of factory economy online. We don't think about what do we actually need to thrive, to flourish, to create today, and then think about how we could not only design different learning systems that can continue to be accessed and so on, but also how we would then put that online. So I think that we talk about technology, you know, I've also described this morning how, you know, now you can apply for a job in a job centre on a computer, but the, but the system is exactly the same, you just queue up to use the computer instead of see the advisor. We've had quite recently a, a, a massive shake-up in the welfare state, notwithstanding what you say about us still operating inside those old systems. We've had universal credit. I think it's fair to say it certainly hasn't been universally successful. Labour is pledging to scrap that. Would you? Well, I think what's really interesting is that, you know, I talk in Radical Help about reform of the welfare state. And one of the things that has happened since the last Labour government is there has been a marketization of the welfare state, by which I don't mean just selling off parts of it. Of course, that has happened. But what I mean is that we've brought the ethics, the culture of the market into welfare systems. So it's all about managing money. It's all about managing risk. It's really about managing risk. And the more you go down that hole, the kind of deeper you get stuck. And so things like universal credit are really, again, it's not anything new. 
It's just a way of trying to kind of streamline and make more efficient a 1950s system. And in some ways, of course, it's a good idea to streamline it. It would be great if people could just have one benefit, if the benefit was actually properly structured and they got it on time and so on. But yes, of course I would scrap universal credit because the universal credit is not something that is helping anybody to flourish or to find or to create good work. So in the 21st century, we'd have to ask really what's its purpose. Okay, so scrap... Jeremy Corbyn, forget Boris Johnson. I didn't Johnson. say scrap Jeremy Corbyn. No, no, I'm, I know you I, didn't I didn't say make that. any party I, I, political I, I know you didn't. of anything. I, I'm saying, perhaps it was the wrong, wrong word, but forget Jeremy Corbyn, forget Boris Johnson. No, but Johnson. can I say something about Jeremy Corbyn? Because can. can I say that it's so interesting? Because, you know, I've been talking today about the welfare state, but I'm interested generally in technology revolutions and what they create. And they need very different economic structures. And it is very interesting that... Corbyn, the Labour Party, the much wider team around him have done some really radical thinking about economics, but they haven't done any radical thinking about social structures, social support. They've said, let's put that money into old systems. So I don't want to make any party political scrapping comment, but I do think if only they had done that radical thinking about social systems, that would be so exciting. And I actually wasn't making a party political comment myself. I was trying to just set aside the, yes. the, the, the real prospects for our next Prime Minister and imagine a world in which we wake up on the 13th of December and Hilary Cotton is in fact in, in number 10 Downing Street you have a blank sheet of paper and you are the architect of a new welfare state what would it look like so in Radical Help, I do actually describe what it looks like. And so I, um, I describe actually cradle to grave, starting with family life and going through to old age. I talk about, and then travelling through growing up, adolescence, health, work and so on, what it would actually look like. Um, and so what I think is really important is that what we need... You know, I, I have described this morning how our systems are mass industrial production systems. They're very centralised, they're vertically controlled... And what we need to have is we need to have a different framework, a different vision, which would be, for me, a capability vision. It would be about flourishing in this century. It would be reinventing the brilliant vision that Beveridge had. Because one other, I mean, there's so much I could say, but one other important thing about the Beveridge vision was it wasn't about services. He wasn't interested in that. He was interested in how we have a nation that thrives as a nation, and that's what I'm interested in. So in order to do that, we have to have a big national story again. I have one about flourishing and capability. And then we need lots of very localised solution making that ha follows these different principles about connecting to each other, about learning, growing, that always prioritise relationships and, and that, that is how we then build well-supported family life. It's very difficult to have family life today in Britain, how we support young people um, and, and through to how we kind of age well. How difficult, though, would that be to implement in practice? Because, of course, you wouldn't have a blank sheet of paper. You'd have to deal with the legacy of the past. You'd have to deal with current realities. You'd have to unscramble a lot of the things that you criticise. Yes. So I've got two answers to that. First of all, we've done it before. That is exactly what the welfare state was about. So when they, um, you know, when finally the Labour government brought in the welfare state, first of all, there was political consensus. I mean, it was obviously implemented by a Labour government, but developed by people from all political parties. I think that is really important. Um, so what, what's, what was important about that is that the government said, 
this is what we're going to do. These are the principles. If you want to work in the system and be paid, you have to follow these principles. Now, some I write about some really good community work that got swept away in that process. But, you know, what was important, doctors, for instance, absolutely hated the idea of the NHS. They were dragged into the NHS, kicking and screaming, but eventually they realised that they wouldn't be paid unless they joined it. So we could have the courage of our convictions and we could say, this is the different social framework. Opt in, money will flow, don't money won't flow. So that's number one. But number two is that we can see that we can build through experimental practice completely different models. And one of the stories I tell in the book is a story about family work, about families that are suffering a whole range of social, emotional, economic difficulties that have been locked in our welfare systems uh, often for many decades. And we started working with those families, spending time, living alongside them, asking them what they really need, how they could make the change, but with our support. This is not about the big society. This is about supporting people, but in new ways. And family lives changed. And we did this in four local authorities. In one of those local authorities, Wigan, they then asked about older people. Anyway, it's a a longer story that I tell in the book. But from starting with sort of 12 families on a small estate, Wigan have completely transformed their cultures, their systems. Um, They're spending less. They're getting sort of outcomes which the last chief executive actually didn't believe. She asked Maury to redo the survey because she couldn't believe it. Um, Actually, they don't even think in terms of outcomes, but they still have to kind of measure that to get national finance. So I think we've got concrete examples of how um, a committed group of leaders in a place have taken a small experiment, reinvented that themselves. I'm not claiming any kind of, you know, it wasn't my work, um, and then have used that to completely transform the system. It's been an age-old dilemma, hasn't it? An age-old tension between making sure that there is a humane safety net because there will always be in any society people who fall through or would fall through people who who don't manage to find a job that on the one hand and on the other hand making sure that you don't entrap people in poverty that you incentivize people properly to to work is it possible to get that balance right it's very interesting i mean a lot of my work at the moment is in scandinavia where they have very well-funded systems and they're very worried that they're not really supporting people to change. But I think there's a question about whether we can get it right, but there's also a very particular question about this moment. What we know, historically, when we look at technology revolutions, is that we cannot, as a society, transition from one way of working and being to another without really broad systems of support. So if we have that, the question, I think which I would argue with the framing of your question, if we have a mindset, which of course has, you know, beverage criticised and now has been intensified by kind of a market economy and the financialization of our economy, where we see the challenges of work, for instance, as that one person, you know, oh, are they a scrounger or do they really want work? We are completely missing what's happening at the moment in our society, which is that people alone cannot transition, that we need to really rethink how we can kind of change skills, how we can bring good work to places that don't have work, Work and so on, because otherwise we are going to see, you know, very deep social schism. But we still have to decide how generous the welfare state should be, and and, and therein does lie a challenge. Because if it becomes too generous, then you might argue it will disincentivize people. If it's not generous enough, then we're not a civilized society. That dilemma still exists. 
Well, for me, that dilemma is kind of so low down the hierarchy. I mean, one thing is that we've got very good evidence, for instance, that Nordic countries with very strong welfare states, very well invested in, are far more entrepreneurial because people dare take risks in their lives because they know they've got something to fall back on. Um, But the other thing to say about my work is that it costs much less actually, to work in the way that I'm describing, rooted in people's lives, rooted in human connection. Everything I do costs less. And we actually measure whether we measure capability, because I'm not interested in traditional kind of market outcomes. Um, What matters to me is, are people thriving and growing their capabilities? But in order to do the work in the system, I also have to measure those outcomes. So I can tell you that if you look at the ageing work or the unemployment work, that the outcomes are better for less money. So I think money should be the last, you know, let's ask that question last. Let's think about you know what we want to do to thrive do you think that your method could lead realistically to full employment of a british society well i'm not an economist uh i think as i understand it that you know we're going to there's never in any particular moment going to be full employment because we are going to transition through work and um you know full employment is a sort of beverage idea where you finally get on the ladder you have a stable job for life and then you get a pension that world has totally gone Uh, most people particularly women are not that sad to have seen that world go So the question is, I think we can have a world in which everybody has good work and everybody has really good support in those moments of transition. So in fact, the work I'm going to focus on next year in 2020 is about work and it's about how we use that transition. How do we think about that time out of work not being an aberration as a time to learn, reskill? How do we change our learning systems to make that possible? But we, you know, otherwise what you can do is you can just simply expand your mental health services and say, oh, we're all depressed, we're all in a crisis, let's put more money into counselling. Now, that can sound very, of course, we also have, you know, it's one of the biggest challenges of our century. It's one of the health problems I discussed this morning that, again, needs a different approach. But we can't see these problems as, you know, oh, there's a mental health problem, there's an employment problem, there's a silo. We have to go back to that thing of what it needs to flourish. And good work is, you know, we've known since Aristotle, it's a critical part of individual well-being and social well-being. How big an impact on the work that you do has AI, the march of AI, had? How concerned should we be about artificial intelligence and the threat that it might gobble up so many jobs? Yes, I I write, I actually, I have a specific, I I address this head-on in the book, but briefly, um, it's very clear that uh, machine learning, at least at this point, is taking out work, it's taking out professional work, as well as, you know, uh, sort of, well, it's taking out work at all levels, I think is the important thing. What we, what we can't see is work that's being created because, as usual, all our data is backward-looking, so it's kind of taking statistics for what's leaving. It's not taking statistics of what's going. And so I think the big argument that I'm trying to make is that in every previous technology transition, we've seen work disappear and we've seen good work be created. But not everybody can make transition from one to the other without new systems of social support and that's why I was here this morning calling for a sibling social revolution to match the technology revolution. So I I think we need to be concerned in the sense not let's panic because there's going to be no work but concerned because if we want to live in a cohesive society we need to design those new forms of support that will enable all of us to transition no matter which community or part of the country we live in. With supply chains becoming more complex you need to stay on top of the latest logistics developments. So if you work with logistics, you need the Beyond the Box podcast from Maersk. 
It's the easy way to keep up to date with everything from digital disruption and logistics to the need for supply chain resilience in today's market. Find out more and keep ahead of the game with the Beyond the Box podcast on logistics insights at maersk.com insights. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com wonder. I want to return to the first question I asked you, which was about relationships. Yes. Because it seems to me that before we even get to the point at which someone might require a welfare state, there are big problems, self-evidently, but one of them involves relationships or the absence of relationships. So I was helped in getting my very first job in journalism by Rachel Johnson because she lives in the neighbourhood in which my parents live. That was obviously a huge advantage. And I'm sure at different points in my career, connections, relationships have proved similarly vital. Many of them I will have built and established myself, although the confidence to do that is no doubt partly rooted in my upbringing and in the fact that I was privately educated. How can we change the world of work before we get to the welfare state and the need for the welfare state? How can we make sure that more people experience the sort of connectedness and the sort of relationships that I've been lucky enough myself to benefit from? Well, it's such a good question. And, you know, one of the things that I always say in my work is service last. Let's think about what we can design within society. What can we put in that feels natural, easy to use, that will overcome challenges? So again, I I really, you know, it is all about investing. It's just not necessarily investing in traditional services. And in the... um, In in the book, I have a chapter on young people because, of course, adolescence was a concept that didn't really exist when Beveridge designed the welfare state. And we have, you know, this idea that young people should be with young people only in youth services. Of course, I mean, when I we had youth services when I did the work. Now, after sort of a few decades of of Tory government, we don't have youth services. So, um, but even so, I I had a critique because, in exactly the way you're saying, what we need to do is we need to make sure that everybody can build those relationships. And you know, the biggest social panel data ever, which has been analysed by Mike Savage at LSE, shows that you know, coming from a family like you have just described that you come from, is going to outperform everything, you know, outperform where you went to school, everything. It is all about those relationships. And a lot of people don't realise it because the other problem is that most of us think we've got to where we've got to, not because our parents made an introduction, but because we happen to be brilliant. Um, And so what we did was we sort of virtually took away the youth centre walls and we asked people, we did this in two different locations, would you like to be part of something which is literally about connecting people with mutual interests across neighbourhood, across class and so on. And it was really amazing. Everybody wanted to join in. 99% of the people we asked wanted to be part of something with young people and to do something with young people that were unlike them. And then having had one experience, they wanted to come back for another. So I think we could really... And of course, I mean, I don't want to go on about the cost, but it was extremely low cost. So, you know, and again, technology empowered it. We could check people. We could make sure it was safe very simply. We could have a few people, you know, controlling communities of several thousand. So the possibility exists to do that. If we want to do it, it is all there. Do we require regulation, though, to prevent nepotism? Well, I think it's, 
you know, this is a very difficult... Who who gets sort of the first, um, you know, who gets to do work experience? Mm. You know, I, I have never taken on anybody for work experience that wasn't paid. But I also have all my social connections and people say to me, oh, could you just take my son or my daughter? And, you know, I've got my own daughter and I'm thinking. So this is extremely complex. We could regulate, but, you know, experience shows that we always get round regulation. I mean, what I would like is to have more of these conversations. You know, I always say, so please... positives rather than negatives. Yes, and also, let's understand... I mean, when I said that about people don't realise that they are where they are because they've had help rather than they're brilliant, I don't mean that in a mocking way. I literally mean that we can't see it, that our lives are so siloed that we think it's on our own merit because we can't see where other people are starting from. So I think any conversation, anything we can do to really understand the nature of the problem, I think people who are trying to get their son or their daughter to have that particular first job whatever it's not that there's anything wrong with them we all want to do that but we're not perhaps aware of the kind of longer run implications of that Let, let's zoom out if we can yes. for, for a bit with our camera move back from britain and, and have a look at the world more widely you've lived and worked in many places i think around the world and you've lived as well in extreme poverty to see what you could learn from that i mean quite literally with open sewers all around what have what has that taught you and what have you then been able to import into your understanding of how our own society in Britain works? So I think I've deeply understood how hard it is, not, it's not impossible, but just to be realistic about how hard it is to have conversations if you have any form of power with people who do not have power. Obviously, I'm not a person with power. Unfortunately, I'm not in number 10, and I don't have, work for any kind of powerful institution. But even so, you know, I, I convey certain things in the way I am. And, you know, I, I tell a story in the book. In this, in this place where I went to live, in the Dominican Republic, I had worked there previously with a big international charity, and I had been invited there to work on the problem that primary school children weren't attending. And we were told that, or I was told, that they didn't attend because the uniforms were too expensive and school meals uh, didn't exist, they were hungry. So I went to communities all over the country and I talked to them about uniforms and school meals. And, yes, it was a problem. So, you know, I worked with the government on how to structure a problem to kind of provide uniforms forms and school meals. I then go and live in this barrio uh, where there's a brilliant Jesuit school on the tarmac road at the top of the barrio, but nobody's children go to this Jesuit school. So I say, but why don't your children go to this school? And they're like, oh, our children don't have identity cards. Because to get an identity card involves this sort of process of declaring yourself. Most of the children are illegitimate. It's difficult in that society and so on. But nobody had mentioned this because it was such a shameful issue that the biggest issue in the country that stopped people going to school was this and nobody mentioned it. So I, I haven't got time to give you similar stories um, here, there in the book, but I have lived exactly that same experience in communities across Britain. So I think one of the things I have really learned is, and that's why I've spent 50% of my life, I suppose, growing methods, visual whatever, how can we get underneath power to really see what's going on, to really get to the root of the problem and think differently about how we would frame some kind of response? It's very easy to look at the suffering and the poverty around the world and to think that it's a sort of black hole that sucks in our, our will and our, our energy and our ability to make a difference. Can we make a difference? Can we, can we really, in, in the coming decades change and transform the lives 
of people who are so often so much less fortunate than the majority of us in this country? Well, I, I would like to refocus on this country because although I have worked all over the world and still now, you know, people are picking up radical help and asking how it applies in other parts of the world, which I think it does. You know, I work in communities in Wigan where in the school holidays, those children have nothing to eat. So, you know, I don't, you know, let's not, let's, let's really think about how that is and whether we can solve that as much as anything else. And I think the answer is, Yes, we can. And the reason that I go back to the welfare state, I mean, partly, of course, because we're living in those structures, as I've said, but the other thing is is that I think it's really hard now to imagine the leap of faith. Imagine standing, for instance, in bombed-out London and thinking, we are going to kind of provide houses for everybody. Everybody's going to go to school till 16. Everybody's going to have medical care. I mean, you would have looked frankly balmy. So, and, you know, the economy was completely broken. So if out of that we could have grown that incredible revolution, which we then did export all around the world, it is completely possible now to think again about how we do that and build on what we've got. And, you know, I work out of a kind of small shed, basically, with nothing. And I, I mean, one of, the, one of the kind of big stories in Radical Help is how everybody wants to join in. If we design things that are simple, easy to use, people want to give their time. Just now I was signing books, but half the book queue was like, can I work with you? Can I help? Can I do something? So um, I'm incredibly optimistic about that. Realistic, I would say. You've already talked about the problem of perspectives, about how, how we can simply assume, for example, that we've got to where we've got to by merit and, and not acknowledge remotely sufficiently the role of luck and privilege and so forth. It, it seems to me that one of the problems in our society is, is precisely that, that we, if we come from a relatively privileged background, we don't have the imagination, even less the experience of living in poverty, to properly understand it and to know what that is like and, and therefore that might inhibit change and improvement so you have lived in poverty as you've just said in in britain different figures are probably banded about i think one figure suggests there may be a four million people four million children in this country living in poverty i'm sure you'll correct me 14 million people overall perhaps in poverty there are different ways of measuring it but having lived in poverty having lived amongst people who don't have enough money to feed their children properly what is that like what what do people feel about that how how impoverished does it seem to you well i mean i think you know the nature of human spirit is is you is you live your life but you know I mean, just, I don't know who, who is listening to us speak now, but I mean, one of the things that most, you know, I'm usually doing the work, but standing back, reflecting, the idea that in Britain, for instance, almost two thirds of families have um, in-work credit because they have jobs in the private sector that pay them too little to live on. So in other words, the, the welfare state has to subsidize private sector employers. I mean, those are the kinds of things I would want to focus on. So I think, you know, what's important is, is not sort of weeping, if you like. It's like, okay, what are the structural, simple things that we just need to correct to make sure this this changes? I want to, as we move to the end of the podcast, talk a little bit about the doing. You've touched on this, of course, because you're not just a thinker, you're a doer, but I think I'm right in saying that you were named the UK Designer of the Year in 2005? Yes. What, what did that involve? And explain to us a little bit the ways in which you have been able to bring innovation and design to bear on changing how people live their lives. So actually that um, award came from work that I did in clinical settings in schools and prisons on, re on actually taking uh, 
infrastructure investments and thinking about how we could socially repurpose them. But I touched a little bit earlier on methods. And, you know, when I, when I started, I, I used these methods um, that, were in, that were developed in India, actually, of using sort of sticks and pebbles and getting people to make visual diagrams and finding ways to have conversations that were honest and open, that people could start to talk about emotional feelings and things that really matter and build change from that. But when I come to Peckham, where I live, or govern, I can't really kind of produce the pebbles out of my pocket. I have to think about how, what could we do in this cultural situation. And I think at the moment, it's a tactic, it won't last forever, but at the moment, working in a visual way is really, really important. So, I mean, I work with the capability framework, uh, framework of the Nobel Prize winner, Amartya Sen and the philosopher Martha Nussbaum. It is quite complex, but if I can work, you know, on the streets with that in a visual form, everybody gets it, everybody uses it, everybody can kind of make it meaningful in their lives. So for me, design is a really important tactic to be able to kind of disrupt and have different conversations. It's a very important tool because it enables us to think extremely local and keep the system in view at all times. And so it's normally quite hard to, to work like that. And it provides a kind of common language for the interdisciplinary teams I put together. I mean, since that award, I haven't worked with physical buildings. I've worked much more with technology and community links. But yeah. Do you feel that you work from the bottom up or from the, the top down? I mean, do you feel that you're part of grassroots change? I think I work from the heart sideways. <laughs> I think, you know, I try to find those connections. And I think the most important thing at the moment is to think about how we make horizontal connections, that we, we have the vertical organisations, vertical silos, vertical ways of thinking. Of course, the answer isn't bot bottom up or top down. You know, that I have spent the time that you've described living in places, trying to understand. I'm also lucky because I'm privileged and I have a certain education that gives me doors to policymakers, and those conversations are really important. So, trying to kind of make those connections and those kinds of relationships is really important. How receptive have politicians been? How receptive is our political system to the sort of work and the sort of vision that you're championing? I mean, does, does politics, do politics in this country have to change for your dreams to be realised? Well, I would say that the British government is one of the very few governments on the back of radical help that has not asked to talk to me, despite reviews in papers of all colours saying that, you know, people should talk about this. And I, we talked at the beginning of this conversation that both the left and the right want to just reinvest in existing systems. So I don't have any relationships with um, anybody in power. Um, in central government. This hasn't always been the case. I have worked with governments of all colours previously, but for about the last 10 years there's been no openness. What has happened in that vacuum is that local politicians, local leaders, have really begun to do radical things in this country, from Wigan to Barrow to Plymouth. And so that's where the energy is, in Britain at least. This isn't the case internationally, but in Britain that's where the energy is and that's where I'm kind of working and talking now. Let's just finish with this question. How optimistic are you? So I am optimistic about humanity. I think that the models that I'm talking about are... I'm talking about my own work because I know it, but these models are everywhere. They work. I'm extremely concerned about the ecological crisis that we're facing. You know, the most important relationship we have is our relationship with nature. Um, I am concerned you know, what we're facing environmentally will, will overturn all of this. And I am very concerned that if we don't think, act and do, and the ways I'm describing are also applicable to that, uh, then, you know, our social revolution will not happen. But you feel 
that you have actually made a difference. You mean I, Hilary Cotton, personally? Indeed. No. No, come on, modesty aside, because I want to feel inspired by the idea that someone who has really quite unusual ideas and who is prepared to spend their life dedicated to those ideas and trying to implement them, I want at least to feel that you feel you've made a difference. Well, first of all, you do what you love, don't you? It's not like I'm Mother Teresa. I do it because I think it's interesting and I've been so privileged to share all these different lives. Like, I I can't tell you. Um, So I think that's really important. Uh, So also, I'm not the kind of person that thinks about making a difference. I'm always the person that's looking in there thinking, oh, well, that bit doesn't quite work. Can't we improve that bit? So I'm not very good at thinking, oh, that was great. But I can say that I have been able to facilitate and been part of processes that, yes, have demonstrably changed thousands and thousands of lives. And that is why I know that we could do this on a, you know, we could do this in communities across Britain, further afield. But, you know, right now, Britain has got a desperate need. Um, And yes, I feel, you know, I suppose in a very small way, I feel proud of having chosen that life path. And I think, you know, I've worked with amazing people and we could do even more. Just makes me think it begs one more question. The big society <laughs> is championed by David Cameron. Yes. Do you think there is a, whether or not you felt that worked, do you think there is a role for the big society outside of institutions, outside of government, outside even of local politics? Yes, absolutely. I mean, I think, you know, the, it, demonstrably it didn't work. Um, because, you know, that government didn't have a theory of the state. They didn't, realize, they didn't understand how the state worked and how it would trip up society. And also because it was a punitive model. It was like, we haven't got money. You put your library book back on the shelf and nobody wants to do that. But actually something that says, you have the answers, you have the knowledge, you have the energy. Can I work with you? Do you want to help me do that? That's a different question. And of course, it lies in our hands. And that's why I'm so optimistic on that level. Lots to do. Thank you very much indeed for Thank joining us. Thank you so much. Thank you. This week's podcast starred Hilary Cottam and was presented by Matthew Stadlin. It was produced by me, Vas Christodoulou, and edited by John Doughty. Hilary's new book, Radical Help, is out now. If you enjoyed this week's show, you can find more like it at howtoacademy.com, where you'll discover an archive full of big ideas for building a brighter future. Guests include Rory Sutherland, Melinda Gates, Matthew Syed, and Chet Nagala Sinha. And of course, you'll discover our live events programme where you can meet some of the world's leading artists and thinkers here in London in the flesh. Thanks for listening.